You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They regard it as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens who created all these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. And young men stumble and fall. 
but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is God's word. Pastor, thank you so much for the privilege of being here at this historic church. I was reflecting on the fact that uh, many years ago I attended uh, Cape and Ray Bible School in, outside of Carnforth, England, and uh, Alan Redpath was one of the uh, teachers at that time, along with a num- number of other uh, names I'm sure you would recognize, John Hunter, Ian Thomas, uh, Billy Strachan, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce actually came for a week and taught there. But uh, Alan Redpath was, uh, lived there, and, uh, and we were able to get to know him a bit. And to be, uh, to be in this historic church is such a privilege. And uh, I just want to tell you also, just the short time that Jody and I have had the privilege of knowing Paul and his family, my, we have grown to love and respect uh, uh, Paul and, and Shiona. And uh, thank you so much for your hospitality. The Lord has given you a great gift in this man. I know you know it, but just want to hear it from someone from outside looking at this. And uh, my, take advantage of the uh, gifted staff the Lord has given you, these teachers and preachers and, and uh, workers who can help you grow in the faith and uh, become s- uh, more solid in your confidence in God's Word. So, uh, boy, you have a lot offered to you here. And uh, to whom much is given... Uh, much is expected, so may God help you and me in our, in our setting uh, to be faithful with what he's given us. Well, this morning, it's my privilege to unpack from one passage of Scripture, uh, although we may look at, uh, at uh, one or two others just uh, as support as well, but primarily from a portion of Isaiah 40, an attribute of God that is really thought about and, and uh, preached about very little in our evangelical subculture. Uh, The attribute of God is the self-sufficiency of God, God's self-sufficiency. In fact, my title for this message is Beholding the God of Self-Sufficiency. And uh, the reason I I think this is an important thing for us to think about together is because this doctrine of God, perhaps more clearly than any other, helps us understand the greatness of who God is and puts us in our place realizing the humble people we are called to be before him. And this is so important. We live in an age, I know it's just as true in the UK as it is in the US. We live in an age where self-esteem is commended. We are to think much of ourselves. And of course, if we do that, the inevitable result is we bring God down. I mean, can't you see this happening in so many quarters of the church? God becomes less as we make more of ourselves and our own minds. But I I challenge you with with this question. Does the Bible encourage us to think in terms of self-esteem? Huh. A correct self-understanding, yes. A correct self-view, no doubt. But self-esteem, I don't think so. I mean, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, what the Bible commends to us is God-esteem. Understanding how great He is and then realizing the privilege that is ours to be related to the one who has everything. We who lack 
are connected to the one who has. And it puts us in our place as a humble people. So this morning, I want to look with you at this doctrine of self-sufficiency to help us understand the greatness of God and a little bit better who we are before Him. I'll begin with a definition of that doctrine and think about that a bit with you. And then we'll take a look at Isaiah 40 and perhaps another passage or two, depending on our time here, and, uh, and see what the Bible says about this. Uh, consider one objection, one contrary view uh, that has been proposed by others uh, within the broad Christian faith, and then some application together. So definition, passages, uh, objection, and then application. First of all, what does it mean to say that God is self-sufficient? Well, it means this. It means to say that God possesses within himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. God possesses within himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. Now, by quality, I have in mind what the Puritans used to, to refer to as the perfections of God. That is, anything that is qualitatively good, truth, beauty, goodness, love, power, mercy, holiness, justice, righteousness. These qualities are God's qualities. They are His possession. So God possesses these qualities within himself, intrinsically. Now, some might ask the question, do you need to say that? Do you need to say he possesses these within himself intrinsically? Isn't that redundant? But the answer is no, it's not redundant. In fact, it's a very important qualifying term because, you see, it's possible to possess something within yourself that is not intrinsic to you. One of the best examples I can give you is if all of us would right now take a deep breath. Ready? Breathe in. Ah, oh, feels good, doesn't it? Now, that breath that is within you is in you because you took it in from outside. It is extrinsic to you and only comes within because you take it in from, from another source. You know, if, if you didn't have that oxygen to breathe, you wouldn't live. You need, and you, you need something extrinsic to you for your life. So the definition of, of self-sufficiency says that God possesses these qualities, these perfections, within himself intrinsically. That is, no one gives to him any of these qualities. They are his by virtue of his being God. It is His holiness, no one else's. He has it all within Himself. His power, no one else's. He has all power within Himself. And you could go down the list of every perfection and say of God, it is His intrinsically. So God possesses these qualities within Himself intrinsically and eternally. My goodness, you realize this means that God always has has now and always will have all of these qualities. There never is a time when he lacks any of these perfections that are his by virtue of his being God. And the final qualifier, the final phrase of our definition, God possesses within himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. 
Now, what does the term infinite mean? Well, it's a negative term, not finite, which raises the question, what does it mean to be finite? Well, to be finite is to be bounded, restricted, limited. So God possesses these qualities without boundary, without restriction, without limitation. They are infinitely His, within Himself intrinsically and eternally true of Him. What an incredible God God is. Now, is this taught in the Bible? Indeed it is. Let's take a look at Isaiah 40. <coughs> and we'll pick up at verse 12. Isaiah 40, verse 12. And notice the imagery that Isaiah uses here of God. Isaiah, uh, God speaking through Isaiah asks some rhetorical questions. Now, rhetorical questions are questions whose answers are so obvious you don't have to give the answer. Is the Pope Catholic? I think we know the answer to that question. Well, here are rhetorical questions that God through Isaiah asks. Verse 12, Who do you know, asks the Lord, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Now think about these images with me for a moment. They are rich. Who do you know, asks the Lord, who has measured the waters of the world, the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea that would have been familiar to Isaiah? Who do you know who can hold the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? What an image that is. You know, I have a very precious memory of a time with my own two girls, with our two own girls, uh, when they were very little. We were on vacation on the west coast of, of the United States in the state of Oregon uh, at a beautiful place called Cannon Beach. And uh, we had a, a cottage that was right on the shoreline. And uh, I read that morning for our family devotions out of this chapter with this idea in mind. So after breakfast, we read this passage, and I said to the girls, they were... Oh, Bethany was about seven and Rachel was about four at the time. I said to the girls, Hey, girls, do you want to do an experiment with Daddy down at the beach? Oh, sure. They're excited, you know. So they grabbed their towel and we head on down. And when we got down to the beach, I said, Okay, girls, now do you remember that passage we read at breakfast this morning about how God can hold the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? Yeah, we remember that. So, okay, here's what we're going to do. Now, I'm going to wade out into the water of the Pacific Ocean a little ways. I want you to stay right here on the shoreline. And I'm going to lean down and scoop up all the water I can of this Pacific Ocean into my two hands. And I want you to watch really carefully how far the level of that ocean dips when I do it. Okay, Daddy. They're excited. You know, they want to see this. So I go out there and I lean down. I say, you're watching? Yeah, we're watching. So I lean down and scoop up the water. Did it change? No, Daddy. I said, girls, now look carefully. So we'll do it again. So I lean down and scooped up the water. Did it change? No, Daddy. So I came back, got down on my knees, looked him in the eyes, you know, just eye level with my girls. I said, now, girls, I want you to learn something really significant about the difference between how big we are 
and how big God is. See, I'm your dad, and I go out here, and I scoop up all the water of that Pacific Ocean I can into the hollow of my two hands, and you cannot tell anything has changed. Imagine a hand so big. Look at that ocean. That if God were to come and scoop up the water of that Pacific Ocean into his hand, that ocean bed would be dry. That's how big God is. What an image this presents to us. Look at the next one in verse 12. Who do you know who has marked off the heavens? Now the NASB that I'm reading from says from the span. The NIV translates that for you. The distance between the tip of your thumb and your little finger. This measuring instrument that you carry with you all the time. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? Wow, what a huge God God is. You know, this image would have been, of course, for Isaiah, a very meaningful image. It's even more meaningful for us who know a bit about the extent of the expansiveness of this universe that we live in. I mean, it is mind-boggling, is it not? Let's just rehearse a couple things you know. Light travels at what what speed? 186,000 miles per second per second. Light traveling from the sun to the earth at that speed takes about seven and a half minutes to get here. The next closest star, this is our next door neighbor to to, to the sun, is a star whose light, once it leaves that star, it takes four and a half light years. Light traveling at 186,000 miles per second. Takes over four years for that light to to, to reach planet Earth. That's next door. How How many stars are there in the Milky Way galaxy in which our solar system is located? Well, they estimate 100 billion stars. Separated by an average distance of about 10 light years from each other, sprawling across this vast Milky Way galaxy. How many galaxies are there in the universe? Well, they don't know because they keep finding more. The Hubble telescope discovered thousands of them, new galaxies that we had never known before. There are hundreds of millions of galaxies, the Milky Way being an average size galaxy in the universe. Hundreds of millions of galaxies spread out by millions of light years from each other. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? Wow. And who do you know who can calculate the dust of the earth by the measure and weigh the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who do you know who can take the scales and weigh the mountains upon them? Put over here the Himalayas and put over here the Rocky Mountains and weigh the mountains in the scales. God can do that. So it's very clear that the point of these images in verse 12 is to convey the immensity and the power of God, how great and expansive he is. Now, the rhetorical questions continue in verses 13 and 14, but the subject matter changes. We move from the immensity of God and the power of God now to the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Verses 13 and 14, we read this. 
<clears throat> Who do you know, asks God through the prophet? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? What's the answer to those questions? Who has ever instructed God? Answer, no one. God has no advisors. God needs no advisors. God wants no advisors. Why? Because he knows everything perfectly. He cannot learn anything from any of us. You know, I think we need to remember this when we are praying. We are not in a position as his people to come before him and instruct the Almighty about what he needs to know so he can get it right in terms of what he should do. He knows perfectly everything already. So when we come in prayer, we don't come to inform him or instruct him. We come to bear our hearts believing that his fatherly love for us will design the best answer that is appropriate for us with our request. And that may be the very request that we have brought to him, that his spirit has moved us to bring, or it may be something else. So we should have humble hearts while we are bold in coming before him through Christ, but humble hearts recognizing he is infinitely wise. We are not. Indeed, the power and the immensity of God, the wisdom and, and the knowledge of God are infinite and perfect. Okay, now as we move on ahead here, verses 15 and following, the implications to us become clear. And my friends, I just need to tell you this. I mean, if I were, you know, editing a Bible, I might put a, a line right here before verse 15 and say, warning, the following passage will be deadly to your pride. Indeed. Look with me. <coughs> verse 15. God says, behold, the nations. Now stop right there and get the significance of that. The collective totality of humanity taken together. All of our wisdom and knowledge and power and prowess taken together across the globe are like what before God? The nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Now what do those two images have in common? The, the image of a drop from a bucket and a speck of dust on the scales. They both communicate something that is what? Tiny, little, insignificant, inconsequential, right? I mean, think, a, a speck of dust on the scales. Just imagine if you were uh, getting some sliced turkey and, and, and they put it on the scale and were weighing it and were about to press the, 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 uh, the button for the price sticker to come out and, and, and you yelled, hold it! And, and the, the, boy, the, the, uh, the merchant said, uh, what's the problem? And he said, well, I don't want to be overcharged. There's a speck of dust on that scale. I mean, they would look at you like, are you crazy? I mean, a speck of dust doesn't weigh in. Isn't that the point? So the nations are before him 
like a drop from a bucket, a speck of dust on the scales. Now you think, well, you know, at least, let, let's be positive about this, at least we're a drop, at least we're a speck, you know. Well, I've got news for you, folks. Keep reading. It gets worse, not better. Keep reading. Behold, verse 15, he lifts up islands like fine dust. The image there is God is so great, he, could, he plays with the islands of the world like a little boy at the beach would let sun, uh, sand run through his fingers. He, he lifts up islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations, here we are back again, verse 17, the nations considered collectively are as what before God? They are nothing before him. Well, we've been demoted, haven't we? We've gone from a speck and a drop to nothing. It can't get worse than that, can it? It does. Keep reading. Verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless, void, empty. The Hebrew word is zero. Uh, so, so here we are. We have hit rock bottom. We are less than nothing and meaningless. Now, my friends, this is so important to think carefully about what this means. In what sense are we as part of the nations of the world? In what sense are we less than nothing and meaningless? In what sense is that not true? What does he mean by this? Well, one thing is clear. He does not mean, when he says the nations are before me as less than nothing and meaningless, he does not mean I don't care about those nations. They mean nothing to me. How do we know that that's the case? Well, how about John 3.16? God so loved what? the nations, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, goodness, that would not be the case if God didn't care about the nations. Why then would he give his son for those nations? Or just in Isaiah 40, uh, Pastor Paul read through the whole of this chapter. Do you remember how it ends? What is the appeal of God at the end of Isaiah 40 to his people. Do you remember? Look again with me. Verse 28. <clears throat> Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. Notice again there the repetition of the themes of the power of God and the wisdom of God. He wants his people to know how powerful he is, how wise he is why? Why does he want them to get this? Ah, verse 29. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not become weary. Do you see it? Why does God want his people to understand how great he is? So that in their weakness, they will reach out and receive from him his power. In their folly, 
and ignorance. They will reach out and receive from him his understanding, his wisdom. Now, I I submit to you that it, it cannot be the case then that a God who is that concerned about his people then could mean back in verse 17 when he says that the nations are before me as less than nothing or meaningless, he cannot mean by that I don't care about those nations. I don't care about my people. Indeed, that is not the case. So what does it mean then when God says the nations are before me as less than nothing and meaningless? And here it is, my friends. This is what it means. If you were to take all of the nations... All of their power, prowess, knowledge, wisdom, everything that they have and would have to offer. And ask the question, what could the nations add to the greatness that is God's? The answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why? Because God already has everything he cannot be added to by us humbling is it not let me take time just for one other passage to show in the New Testament a confirmation of this doctrine turn if you would to Acts 17 Acts 17 and hear from the Apostle Paul in his sermon at the Areopagus in Athens his understanding of who God is at verse 22 Paul had been invited to come to the Areopagus this place of learning in the heart of Athens and, uh, and speak to the philosophers there so we read in verse 22 of Acts 17 so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said men of Athens I observe that you are very religious in all respects For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So here is Paul's own description, theology 101, if you will, of who God is, who the true God is. Verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Do you see self-sufficiency in that passage? He does not need anything from us. In fact, what Paul, the, the, the heart of his teaching here is the self-sufficiency of God. And he undergirds it with, with three arguments. First of all, God is creator. The, the God who created the heavens and the earth. Well, what does creation have to do with self-sufficiency? Do you see the link, the, the logical tie between those two? God created what? Out of nothing. Well, if that is the case, then it is impossible for the creation to add something to God. Do you see it? Because God existed just fine, thank you, apart from any creation. And the creation is only what it is because God has invested in it every quality that it has. 
So the beauty and the wisdom of the created order is a display of the glory of God, as Psalm 19 declares. The heavens declare the glory of God precisely because it is His wisdom manifest, His power manifest in physical, visible form. So the, the world, the creation, then cannot add to God. It's, God is not dependent upon it, but it is dependent how much on Him for everything, for its very existence, and for everything that sustains it, and for all of its workings. It depends upon Him. He depends on it not at all. But He not only created everything, to create it is to own it, and to own it is to rule it. That's good biblical theology. That's, that's what we're really supposed to conclude from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, what does that imply? He owns it, and he has rights of rulership. Indeed, the God who made the world and all things in it, secondly, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. So he's not only creator of all, but he's ruler of all. He has rights of rulership over everything. So it is never the case that, that God would like to use something out there, but it's not his to use. Like, we run into that problem all the time, don't we? You know, we have to borrow something from a neighbor or go buy something at the store. God never has that problem because everything he's made is his. Amazing. Then the third argument is at the end of verse 25. He's creator, he's ruler, and he is giver. Look at how Paul ends. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and how much? And all things. Don't miss the two uses of all in that last phrase. He gives to all people all things. Well, if he gives all things to all people, question number one, how much must he possess in order to give? He must have already possessed everything. And if he gives to all people, how dependent upon, uh, how, how dependent upon him are we? For everything. So God has it all. We're the ones who lack. He's the one who has. The dependency relationship then between God and the world is asymmetrical. It runs one way. We depend upon God for everything. As Paul says in the end of verse 25, for life and breath and all things. God depends upon us for how much? Nothing at all. He is fully self-sufficient. Okay, quickly, one objection that has been raised to this is the objection, well then, our lives must be meaningless if that is the case. If we can't contribute to God something, then there's really no point to our living. And I, I, I heard this growing up in the church that I grew up in, a, a good Baptist church uh, on the west coast of the United States, a good church in many respects, but, but the theology that was presented in terms of God really did put God in the place of dependency. I mean, isn't God lucky I'm here to give out of the bounty of my resources and from my gifting what I have to contribute to the work of God? And there was really an arrogance that was attached to Christian service. What a, what a horrible tragedy that is. 
instead of a humility, recognizing anything I have to give has first come from him. So he receives all the glory. But no, the, 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 the theology that I grew up with was that God created the world because he was lonely. He had no one to talk to, no one to have fellowship with. And so he thought, boy, I, I really need what others could bring to me, what others could give to me to fill up this ache in God's heart. And so that's why we're here. My friends, this idea of God being a lonely God has many problems. One of them, what's, what's the answer to that notion that God would be lonely apart from creation? What's the theological answer? The doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity. There is in God a social relationship, eternally true, infinitely glorious, beautiful, of Father, Son, Spirit, in harmonious relationship forever. God is not a lonely God apart from us. He is infinitely full and rich as the triune God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. But here's the other, other reason that this notion that God created us because he was lonely is, is so hurtful and harmful because then it puts us in the position of being the givers and God is the receiver. Well, then who should get the glory, quite frankly? We should if we're the ones who give to poor God and we bail him out. But my friends, this is never the case because he has everything and we can give him nothing that is not already his. And the only reason we have it is because he's given it to us in his kindness. Well, quickly, just a, a point or two of application. First, first, a point about God himself. I think one of the most humbling but important realizations to come to in the Christian life is this one. To realize now, you know, if you haven't thought of this before, it will seem shocking to hear it. But here it is. In light of this truth, it is true that God does not need any of us, nor does he need anything we give to him. He doesn't need the service that he calls forth from us. He doesn't need our tithes and offerings. He doesn't need our sacrifice. He doesn't need us in order for him to be fully who he is. So, doesn't this raise the question then, why are we here? Why did God make us if he doesn't need us? If we don't you know, the, the, the illustration John Piper has used is the, is the notion of, of God being a half-empty water trough and we're the bucket brigade to fill up poor God. So we pass down our water and, 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 the, and, and God is filled up because of what we give him. If that's not the case, then why are we here? Well, here's the answer, my friends. Though God does not need us, amazingly, 
He loves us. And He created us not for the purpose of us filling up Him, but rather He created us purposely empty to be filled with Himself. Do you see it? We were made to be receptacles, to be filled up with God's character, God's wisdom and knowledge informing my weak and frail mind. God's power coming to fill up in my weakness. God's holiness becoming then the holiness of my character. So that God pours himself into us. He didn't create us in order to benefit himself, but rather that we might be benefited from him. It's an amazing concept to realize. God's love for us is, as C.S. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain, God's love is bottomlessly selfless. It has everything to give and nothing to receive. Isn't that an amazing statement? God's love, Lewis says, is bottomlessly selfless. It has, it has everything to give and nothing to receive. Well, my friends, one, one more application point and we'll close. What does this mean then for Christian service? Why does God demand of us that we give ourselves to him? And by the way, how much does he demand of us? Does he demand 10% of our money and that the rest 90% is yours, do with what you want? Are you kidding? He demands all of it. Now we give as, as a stewardship a portion back to the work of the Lord, or we better do that. My goodness. Yes, we, we are called to do that, but we should not conclude God requires that of us because he needs us to give or poor God. Goodness gracious, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The world is mine and all it contains, says the Lord. Ah, Psalm 50, that is. So why, why, why does he demand of us our service, our, our, our money, our, our gifting given to him if he doesn't need any of it? And here, my friends, is the answer. He knows that we will only find our true fulfillment in life when we are attached to the source from which all goodness, beauty, wisdom, truth, holiness flows. He wants us to know our full dependence upon Him. And so he says, devote yourself to me. And as you do that, you will receive then from me the blessings and joy that I have to pour out into your life. Another way to think of service, Christian service, is in this category. He doesn't need, he doesn't need me to be preaching here today. He could do the work another way as he chose. He could speak through a heavenly bullhorn if he wanted to. Couldn't he? And we'd get the point if God did that. So, so why, why does he call all of us to Christian service? My friends, here is the answer. Not because he needs us to do it, but because in his love he grants us the privilege 
of participating in the greatest work, the most meaningful work, the most satisfying work there is to do in all of human life, and that is the work of God. It is the privilege granted that is the reason for his insistence that we serve him. I mean, you have to put together Psalm 102, serve the Lord with gladness. I'm sorry, Psalm 100, verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness, and Acts 17, 25, God cannot be served by human hands as though he needed anything. How do you put these two together? Well, God doesn't need our service, but he demands, us so that, he demands it so that we will enter into the joy of service with him. He could have sidelined all of us, but instead we're given the privilege of participating in his work. Well, my friends, God is great and glorious. He is infinitely full. And as we close this morning, I encourage you to rethink what it means to be before him, his child. It means coming before him every day with a heart of dependence, recognizing he is the one who has everything that I lack. I don't have it in myself. I need to come before him in prayer, seeking him in his word and receiving from him what he has. May God give us hearts that long to know him and receive from him his fullness. Let's pray together. Father, thank